America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 2. This is Peter Bone. Most people know me as Peter B. I had a great time doing Dick's show, the Oldies But Goodies show. In fact, it made me feel totally groovy. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow Hey everyone, and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the 60s with host Dick Scopatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called Feelin' Groovy. He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swingin' 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show? Thanks, John. They came out of the 60s with three different band names doing all kinds of rock and roll covers until one day they had a chance meeting with Jan and Dean, and all of a sudden a new name emerged. They've kept that name for almost 40 years, the hottest Beach Boys band around, Papa Do Run Run. the good fortune today to be talking with Don Zerilli, whose group Papa Do Run Run has been touring in concert continuously since the 60s. Papa Do is the now legendary California band that sounds just like the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean, but they also had an unprecedented 15-year run as the celebrity house band at Disneyland. And does he have stories to tell? Hey, Don, glad you're with us today. Hi, Dick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I know we've got a lot to talk about because you and I have already talked, and you were actually on my radio show not quite a year ago, and I learned all kinds of things about Papa Doer on Run. But take us back to the 60s and talk about the genesis of Papa Do and all the various band names you guys went through in those early days. Well, it's, uh, I'll do the best to remember. I'm getting old now. You know, so my memory's kind of failing. Uh, <laughs> But I've told these stories a lot of times, so hopefully I'll get them right. Um, we started in 1965, and uh, it was just four high school guys just wanting to be in a band, and our goal was to, to play at our high school. I played a dance at our high school, which was Cupertino High School. Mm-hmm. And the two of us went to college, the two guys were still in high school, I went to San Jose State, and with uh, Steve, our, he was the guy that actually had the idea of starting a band. He just learned how to play the guitar, so you can imagine what we were like. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we rehearsed a little bit and you know, learned a few songs, and we had to go audition for, their, uh, for the dance at the high school. So that was our goal, to get enough songs to do the audition. Then we'd learn more songs if we got to do the dance. Sure enough, we auditioned and we won. We didn't have a name, uh, but we auditioned with a bunch of animal songs, songs by the animals, you know, 
well, organ-based. Yeah. I'm an organ player, and I happen to have an organ, so we did animal songs. We said, let's call ourselves the zoo. So there was already a band in the area called Zoo, Z-O-O, so we just changed it to the U. Okay. And that was, that was, you know, it was a good gig and went over pretty good. To sharpen our, our, our uh, skills at, at playing some of the top 40 stuff, we did a couple of frat parties first at San Jose State. And dinner for nothing. Our pay was all the beer we could drink. Oh, yes. And for, you know, high school kids, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, yeah, we did those. That And then that spun off to, to more high school, uh, frat parties and stuff. And then we did our high school gig, and that spun off to more high school. And we just you know, we figured, what, what's happening here? <laughs> We're getting gigs. And we'd have no idea. We'd, you know, keep doing it. As uh, music progressed, we decided to do some other stuff besides doing animal songs. So we were doing songs by the Doors, and we are doing songs like Creedence Clearwater and that kind of thing. We changed our name to something different to not be reflective of the zoo. Uh, we called ourselves Goody Two-Shoes. That was our name for the next, uh, like, three years or so until about 1971. All right, so we, you're taking me to, are you, have you reached the end of the 60s yet? Are you starting uh, to Yeah, so we're, we're, the 60s was the 60s, and they say if you can remember it, you weren't really there. We had, yeah, we had a great time in the 60s. The music was great then. It was different than the 70s music, which was immensely different than the 80s and 90s. Sure. But um, the, the music of the 60s was great, fun, happy music. And, you know, and uh, we, we didn't really get into the Beach Boys stuff. Because by the time we were doing Beatles and, you know, Animals and that kind of stuff, and the Beach Boys were almost passe, you know, in the late 60s. The Beatles were thinking, oh, the British invasion thing had happened. And so we weren't doing much, although we loved the Beach Boys, we're kind of closet Beach Boy freaks. And during rehearsals, we would, you know, just kill time by doing Beach Boy harmonies because we thought they were just so great. And that's how kind of how we got into doing the act we have today. Okay. Is in 1971, we were opening the show as Goody Two-Shoes for Power of Power. And it was at Gunn High School in Palo Alto. We did our, our set, and the, the Power of Power hadn't shown up yet. So the promoter comes over and he says, uh, let's just do a nice long encore because they're not here yet. So okay, so we go back on, well, what are we going to play now? We already did all our, you know, Grand Funk Railroad and uh, the other stuff we used to do back in those days. Right. And so one of the guys said, let's just do the Beach, the beach Boy stuff. And so we did, and the place went berserk. Now, I, I would have never expected that. Mm. And, I mean, it really blew the roof off the place doing Beach Boy songs. It was a half-hour-long medley of, you know, California Girls and Surfing USA, Fun, 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 Vibration. The people went nuts. And that night, we after the show, we just, let's just get rid of everything else and just do Beach Boys. That's how that whole process began. Now, you mentioned a couple of times, and I didn't actually, didn't even realize this and until uh, the other day, uh, your dad was very much involved in showbiz as well as nurturing you guys along. He's the most influential guy, I think, that to keep us on track. My father owned a nightclub, and... We used to rehearse at his club because he had all this and was already set up in a PA system and stuff there. So we, we could rehearse there for nothing. And I got to see an awful lot of great acts there. They had a club was called The Embers, and it was open from, like, 1960 to 1969. And actually started in 1957, I think. They didn't have entertainment. It was in Redwood City. Redwood City, yeah. Okay. Big club, sat 500 people. And he didn't have entertainment at first, but in the 60s came along, he, he and his partner said, we got to get some entertainment in here. So they built a stage. And they started bringing in what was then oldies bands. They brought in Bill Haley and the Comets. They had uh, 
Oh, God. The Flamingos played there. The Richard Bastomino. Wow. Did you see any of them? I saw them all. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was in high school at the time, and I wanted to see these acts. And so I could sit in the, he had a, a big window in the back room, and I could sit up, up there and where the soundboard was and listen to them and watch them. It, it helped them. I helped a lot of them load in because, you know, I just wanted to be there and be involved. So that was a huge influence. And then my father started managing bands and never managed us, but he wound, he wound up booking, he bought us our first amplifiers, which at the time were Super Beetle amps. Oh, yeah, the Vox. Yeah. The big, giant Vox Super Beetle amps. And we literally, we, we would win battles of the bands just by rolling those things on stage. Because people say, oh, my God, I got Super Beetle to for them, you know. <laughs> Every band wanted those. Oh, yeah. And, and they were hard to get. I remember he, he knew a guy who knew a guy, and... Um, they had them brought from England, and they, yeah, they they, are, they were British. They had different voltage things set on them, so you could either play with, you know, uh, British power, and, and which I think is DC power, I don't know, and, and, or AC. And so it was it was pretty interesting getting those and doing gigs with them. We you know, we used them for a long time, just having them kind of give you kind of a name, you know. Sure. But my father was he was uh, later in his career. He sold his club in nineteen. Uh, 68, 67, 68, he became a manager. He went into management. He managed a band called the Knickerbockers. I don't know if you remember them. Oh, Lies. Lies. Yeah, Lies. You know, and you mentioned that, Lies. That, there was a lot of people that thought, at least for a while, that that was actually the Beatles under another name. That's true. And uh, and they they sounded like the Beatles. He managed also a spiral staircase. Yeah, I love you more today than yesterday. Sure. Yeah, that would be good for them. So he, he got into that, and eventually he wound up being the head booking guy at Harris in Lake Tahoe. And, you know, so there, he knew a lot of bands and a lot of managers and stuff, so he, he was the perfect person for that job. And um, he, wound up, he wound up with that under his belt. He would book us up there. Whenever he had some time off, he could come up and do two weeks in, you know, Harris in the cabaret. And so we were working a lot at Harris. We were doing, you know, uh, about four weeks a year just um, between there and Reno. Got us into the club scene, really. You know, uh, interestingly, we were up in uh, Tahoe. I'm going to say this would have been maybe two years ago, and we were staying uh, near the North Shore. But I said, I want to drive down to State Line and just walk through Harris because I hadn't been there in years. And we played Harris as well. Uh, I want to say we were there probably 1968, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, as Harper's Bazaar. And walking through, I found the area where the cabaret was. It's not the cabaret anymore. Gone yeah, it's gone. But even yeah. just kind of standing there, I, I, I reverted back like 40-some-odd years to when we were there. I don't know if your dad was booking the place at that time. 68, would it, he have been there at that point? Uh, no, he started booking there in um, maybe 72, okay. right around the late 70s anyway. All right, and then you mentioned something about he uh, knew Don Costa. Yeah, he was. Uh, he had a band called Orange Colored Sky that uh, was kind of an up and coming band. They came from Erie, Pennsylvania, and they uh, did a lot of original stuff. And he took them in the studio, and that's where he met Don Costa. Was in the studio. Was, I think. Well, actually, he brought us in the same studio too. We recorded a whole album with the stuff there and never did anything. But anyway, he became really good friends with Don Costa. Uh, as a record producer, and Don Costa also was uh, Frank Sinatra's producer and music director and arranger. 
Okay. And so he got to meet Frank Sinatra and got to be really friends with him. And uh, yeah, it was a, you know it's it's amazing how the the connections go through life. Sure. Yeah, and plus for you guys, that was a definite Hollywood connection because it was. I th- didn't you did you play the whiskey? We played the whiskey. We played uh, the Roxy. Uh, we played uh, Gazzari's. You know, lots of places down there. You know, clubs. And it was my father got us in those gigs. <laughs> yeah, I love him. He was, he was he was our biggest fan. He really pushed us a lot. And, and uh, he made us toe the line. My father told us one time uh, when we first started doing it. Um, I remember we were in his club, we were practicing on the stage, and he said, so you want to be, you know, musicians? And we're all going, yeah, yeah, Mr. Zarelli, we want to do it. <laughs> and he says, well, here's the rule. The music business is two words, music, business. 90% business, 10% music. He said, remember that, and don't get away from that. So we did. We, we, we set up ourselves, you know, a corporation, and uh, you've got to do all the things you've got to do. You know, you make sure you pay your taxes, because we don't want any trouble. And so... Yeah, we did everything like we're supposed to, and he was right. If you do the business end, the music will come. Okay, it's toe-tapping time. Let's see if we can squeeze in a break here. We're coming right back. That's great. And it sounds like, of course, if he started earlier on with a club, his heart really was into entertaining in general, it sounds like. He loved everything about the entertainment business. Yeah, he knew, he knew a lot about it. Because, you know, he got he got into it in the in 1960s when they first decided to have entertainment at his club. And I think the rock and roll was only, what, four or five years old then. Yeah. And so it, was, uh, it uh, moved pretty quickly, and... He just got to know everybody. My father was a very social guy and knew everybody. And, you know, I, I'll never forget the time I, I first met uh, Jilly Rizzo. Jilly Rizzo was Frank Sinatra's right-hand man. Sure. Uh, he became my father's best friend. They would go to the track together and stuff. And, uh, anyhow, I, I was in Weird Harris, and my dad said, Oh, here comes Jilly. I want to introduce you. And I hadn't met him yet. And so this guy comes up, and Jilly Rizzo looked like the godfather. I mean, he had the look. And, you know, he, he walks up and he's got, like, you know, the, the trench coat draped over his shoulders and he's wearing a hat. And he comes up with his little entourage of people. And my father says, hey, Jilly, come here. I want you to, I want you to meet my kid. My father's name was Dominic. So he says, Dominic, so this is your kid. And he, he squeezes my cheek and he's going, he's a chip off the old block, Dominic. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this, I'm going to die. You know? <laughs> oh, jeez. But that was one of my, you know, big experiences with that. But, um, yeah, he was a regular guy. He just played it up, you know. You mentioned pinching the cheek. I can't tell you how many times my grandparents did that because I'm 
My last name is Scapatoni, so it doesn't get more Italian than that. So. Very Italian thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it is. Let's shift a moment here. I, I want to kind of see if we can get into what you consider to be some of your most notable successes all the way along, not only just in the 60s, but you guys have actually been together consistently for, are we talking 50 years now? That's almost unreal. Yeah, 52 years, yeah. Amazing. What do you think were some of your most notable successes? Recording-wise, we've had two gold records and a Grammy nomination. Prior to that, I think well, our first record that came out, that was that was something, it was a big deal for us. You know, cause, I mean, the first real record, we had a lot of little records, you know, and local things around here that never went anywhere. But then when Bruce Johnston from the Beach Boys decided that he saw us and he came to a gig we actually did in Santa Cruz at the Civic Auditorium and saw us there. And the next day he pulled out the paper and said, I want to sign you guys to a deal with RCA. I said, really? Okay, where do we sign? You know, <laughs> it's that quick. And he said, I have the perfect song for you to record. He said, this is the summertime, of course. And he says, be true to your school and we're going to release it the day school opens. And so I thought, well, that's great. And it was all hit for the Beach Boys, um, you know, 10 years earlier. Yeah. And so a week later, we're in the studio in Hollywood. We're at RCA, in the same room they always used to record us. And um, we're recording Detroit Your School. And sure enough, it came out, just as he said, and it was a big hit. Not so much in the United States. It was a hit here. But it, was, it made top 40. I think it made number one in California. But in Europe, in Scandinavian countries, in Australia, that thing just went through the roof. And so uh, it was a big deal. And that was probably one of our most notable successes. And then the interesting part of that is the flip side of that record was called Disney Girls. And it was a song that Bruce Johnson had written. And so he had us do that thing. And that literally, that song opened the door to Disneyland. One of the, um, the entertainment people at Disneyland put on these conventions, actually, for cheerleaders. There were cheerleader conventions, and they happened during the summertime. And we used to play those things. And so he saw us, and I told him about this. We got a new record coming out. And um, and the, the, those things were amazing. I mean, the girls would be screaming. They'd think it was the Beatles on stage. But he, I told him about the record, and when it came out, I sent him a copy. He took that over to uh, the head guy at Disneyland, which Sonny Anderson was his name. And he says, hey, you got to see this band. They're really good. And they got this song, Disney Girls. So you know, he didn't care about be through to your school. And so Sonny came out and saw us and hired us for our first gig there at Disneyland in uh, 19, December 1975. And uh, we were opening for Bo Donaldson and the Haywood. The rest of history. We were there for 15 years. We never left. Amazing. And was it just during the summers you would go down and just plant? We were there um, every summer, except for the summers we toured with Jan and Dean. But we didn't do the whole summer. We only did like half a summer. We did six weeks with Jan and Dean, and that'd be it. The rest of the time we spent at Disneyland. Plus, we did all the holidays, you know, Easter, uh, Christmas, whatever the holiday break was, we, we were there. And we did all the, um, the thing called grad nights, where all the kids and high school come in. And uh, we did all the grad nights for 15 years. We did them all. It, was, uh, it was great. Well, you know, you're talking about first time at RCA, and all of that, I, I can feel the same kind of vibes because we went through the same same thing first time we recorded at uh i think it was western studios on sunset that's where we recorded our california project oh really okay but even just going through all that the first time that happens you're in hollywood now you come from little old san jose now you're in hollywood you're in a big recording studio i i'm sure it had the same effect on you as it did on us as we went through that that process and i know that you worked with a number of well-known people 
back in those days. Tell me about some of the names. Let's just start with Brian Wilson. Just go wherever you want to go with Brian, go with Brian. Start talking about him. Brian was, um, we didn't get to know Brian until the, um, probably the 80s, really. Um, he, was, he was real reclusive. You know, he didn't want to see people. He didn't, didn't hang out. And, you know, he wasn't one of the regular guys. We actually met, um, we met Dean from Jan and Dean first. And that was before Jan and Dean were, I mean, they were already done. Their career was over. Because Jan got into a car accident. And um, he was completely debilit- uh, debilitated. He couldn't, um, he had, his whole right side of his body was paralyzed. He had a thing called aphasia, where he could, his brain worked, but he couldn't get it out. Jan was done. Dean was in the, uh, he was making record album covers. He was an artist. And he, he got a couple of Grammys, I think, for doing those. But he, um, we met Dean. And we convinced Dean, well, Dean came back on stage and would sing some song with us, because we did a lot of Jan and Dean songs. We were doing a gig at the Palomino Club in Hollywood, and Dean came just as our special guest, and Jan was in the audience. So we, Dean says, Jan says, Jan, come on up, come on up on stage and sing a couple of times. And so, you know, Jan didn't want to do anything because he really couldn't sing very well in those days, but he said, come on, we'll go back up. And so he came up on the stage, and the audience was really nuts over Jan and Dean, you know, on stage together. I think we did, you know, Honolulu, Surf City, and, and Dead Man's Curve. And next morning on Variety, was a headline, and it says, Jan and Dean back together again. Wow. And um, suddenly the phone started ringing. Agents wanted to book Jan and Dean. And uh, so Dean called us up. He was hey, let's, let's do a tour and see if this works. So we rehearsed with the two of them a little bit, and I would sing all Jan's parts along with him because he, I sound just like Jan, and he, he, was, uh, yeah, he was still a little shaky about doing stuff. But um, So we did yeah, our first little tour, went, just went up the Pacific Northwest. We played in Portland and Bend, Oregon and Seattle and Sounds like that. And they were all sold out. It was a success. So that's when Dean said, let's hire a real agent. And I think he went with ICM or some big agency and put together a real tour. And so we did five tours with them across the United States between 1976 and 1980. Okay, you guys were on the road. During that time, we got to meet the Beach Boys. You know, I I mentioned Bruce Johnson. Dean actually brought Bruce to our gig in San Cruz. And uh, that's how we met him. And then from there, we met, you know, Mike Love and... We finally met, I met Brian in uh, 1981, and I was backstage at a Beach Boys concert, and just met him, and we talked a little bit, and then he would come out, he'd actually come out to Disneyland, once he found out we were there, he'd come with, you know, a couple of friends, handlers, I guess to call them, but he'd come up and come on stage with us, he'd come up and, you know, the stage comes up out of the ground in Tomorrowland, we loved riding on that thing, so we'd get him up and... Funny, he, didn't, he really didn't want to play Beach Boy songs. He wanted us to do his first, his most favorite song, and the one he always wanted to do was, he said, hey, guys, play Be My Baby. Oh, yeah, uh, Phil Spector. That was, I think, every rock band in the 60s with that uh, drum intro is so distinctive that uh, we I, we played it a thousand times. Uh, Mike Love, I just finished reading his book. It's very interesting, actually more revealing than I thought it would be because the Beach Boys and, and Harpers somewhat crossed paths, although not really. As a matter of fact, when we first met them, we were opening the show for them, but we weren't called Harpers at the time. We were called the tiki's but the the mike log love book was really very revealing a lot of crazy stuff that went on how he put up with it through all those years i don't know but you mentioned that he was kind of a quiet guy yeah he's very quiet yeah he's very he's, he's quiet and 
before he's on stage, and then he does all the talking. He's very personal on stage. He, um, we, we actually got together with Mike in the early 80s when the Beach Boys weren't working that much, and uh, corporate stuff started happening. Corporate, corporate event parties were happening, and the Beach Boys didn't want to do them. And so Mike said, well, I'll do them. So he used Papa Duran around as his band, or some of our guys. Sometimes some of the guys in the Beach Boys band, some of our guys. But we did three or four years of those gigs with Mike and went all over the country doing stuff with him. We went to Hawaii and Florida and New York and all over. And um, there were corporate dates, but uh, he was great. You know, he was, we'd go in, we'd do the sound check, and we'd play the little opening set. Mike literally would fly in on a private plane. He'd have a limo pick him up, drive out to the venue, just in time to get on stage. He'd do the gig, because we already sound checked his mic for him, so that's fine. He'd get on stage, do his hour and a half, Go back to the, the airport, get back on the fire plane, and fly home. Okay. <laughs> it was great. And then we would finish out the night playing dances. We got to know Mike. I mean, we did a lot of games with Mike, so it was, it was kind of fun. You know, when we look back on all of the various successes that we had over the years, we know that most of us you know, at least realize that life is not all a bed of roses. So let's flip this around. I'll ask you, what's your best failure story? Yeah, we've got some. We've got a bunch of them. As you can imagine, I remember a time when we were on the space stage at Disneyland. Space, space stage is the the, uh, the one that, um, it's, it's underneath Space Mountain. Oh, yeah. Not, okay. Right, for the people who have been there. It's uh it's a big stage. It used to be a big stage, and it was uh, it was the biggest stage in the park. And we were performing on that stage when it first started, when it first opened up. And the things weren't working right. The monitors weren't working. The the you know, the, the instruments were something wrong. The sound on stage wasn't right. And you could see it uh, from the audience. You could see the band was. We've had some kind of you know confusion going on, and uh, not not being happy campers. And so um, we took our break, and we went upstairs to the dressing room and. In walks Sonny Anderson, who I mentioned, is the, he was the head head uh, of all entertainment for everything Disney. And he came in, and he says, you know, I just saw your show. And he says, i got to tell you guys something. He says, you know, I really like the show, but you've got to ignore the bad stuff that's going on. He says, I don't care if the monitors are on fire and the lights are falling down on your head. Keep smiling. Yeah. Because the audience here wants to see smiles, and they're not going to know the difference. If, you know, if, it, you know if, you don't, if you just pay no attention to it. And sure enough, he's right. You know, that's Audience, if you're having a good time, they're going to have a good time. So that's, that's what Disneyland's all about. That's an interesting observation because I think it is true for the most part. When you're doing a show, you know it backwards and forwards. You can do it in your sleep. You're used to all the various sound levels of what's going on. You know how long between songs, how much talking you could do. So when something happens on stage that's out of the norm, it can throw you. The audience most of the time is clueless. They're not aware that your monitors aren't working. Uh, so now it can, it makes it a little tough for you on stage, but nonetheless, uh, you do. Uh, his his point is well taken. You know, you, they're looking for smiles at Disneyland, and and I think that's what you guys you guys brought them. When I look back and I realize that back in the day, you know, when we were younger. Now we're aging baby boomers, and so we probably no longer look too much like Jack Lane. But how's your health nowadays? I'm 70 years old now, so I've been around the block. And, and that was another one of the, those uh, failing things that happened on stage. Actually, I had a heart attack on stage oh. when I was 52. Oh, 52 years old. And, but it wasn't one of these clutch your chest and fall down things. It was just chest pain. And I had... I had 
previously had some chest pain. And the doctor, they, they didn't know what it was. They just thought it was either acid reflux. It could have been my heart. So he gave me a little bottle of nitroglycerin pills to carry around with me. He says, if it, if it happens really again, take these, and, you know, one at a time. And they're little tiny pills. And uh, he, he says, after you take three of them, call the paramedics because you're having a heart attack. Okay. There. All right. And so I took one. Uh, we're on stage in San Diego doing a gig, and uh, I started feeling this chest pain. So I, I popped one in between songs, sort of one way. The next break, it was back again. So popped another one until I had taken the whole bottle. I took 25 of those things at night. But um, I made it through the whole night. In fact, we even did an extra set. Gee <laughs> so, but then, then the guy, the promoter, comes up and he says, I need you to do another extra set. And I looked at my bottle. I said, well, I'm out of nitro. We're done. And so that was <laughs> yeah. into that. But when I got home, uh, the next day I drove home. I yeah. drove down with my wife. And we drove home. I felt okay. I was really tired. Went to the cardiologist. And, and she says, um, she looked me over and listened to my heart and did, you know, the EKG thing. She says, you had a heart attack. Walk yourself across the street to the hospital and check in. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, oh. That was that. You know, that was, that's the sure the only health problem I've had. Some of the guys in the band have had, had some problems. We had a guy who, um, still out, he's, he's taken a, a leave of absence for a year, and Tim Rush is our bass player, and one of my partner, one of the original guys in the band, he uh, had throat cancer about a year ago, so and he's still recuperating from that. From the, not so much the throat cancer is gone, but it's the scar tissue. Yeah. And so he's still just taking it easy. I think it might be time for a brief musical interlude. We'll be coming back shortly, so stick around. Take your size, the lonesome old is grand to try. So the saxophones say, I should refuse you. The cracked bells and washed out horns blow into my face the storm, but it's not that way I wasn't born to lose you. I want you, I want you, I want you so bad. Honey, I want you. All those kinds of things that, as we get older, that's what starts happening. Yeah, on the plus so, side, yeah, um, is is uh, our bass player now filling in for him is the guy who was with us back in the late eighties. No, I'm sorry, the late nineties and early two thousands. And that's Randall Kirsch, who he was drafted by the Beach Boys to be their bass player for the last eleven years. He was the Beach Boys bass player, and then he left them last year and. We said he's available, so let's get him back. So he's, uh, he's now our bass player. In fact, all of our guys in the band have played with the Beach Boys at one time or another. We have a, another guy's name is Adrian Baker. He was with the Beach Boys for 20 years. He was singing all Carlos parts, all the high stuff. And uh, they, they like to, you know, keep changing it up people. And so they, uh, in fact, they got Randell to replace Adrian, and Adrian became our guy. And now we have Randell and Adrian. Okay. That's great. What's uh... Have your uh, musical taste changed since the 60s, or what, what kind of music do you listen to now? Uh, you know, I still like the music of the 60s. I, I, I always loved the Beatles. I mean, I just, we, we used to do some Beatles songs back in the day. Um, actually, we learned the whole first side of Sgt. Pepper's, and we did it straight through. And that was, that was a, a pretty hefty thing to do back in those days when all you had was an organ and an electric piano, and there was, there was a lot of stuff going on. But... Um, yeah, I love the Beatles. The Beatles. Uh, I, oh, I loved. I'll tell you who I really loved was in the, um, the late '60s. I saw the Moody Blues. They played out of Santa Clara County Fairgrounds, and uh, they just 
blew me away. And I said, this is the best band I've ever heard in my life. And they continued, and I saw them several times since then. The latest time was with an orchestra. And they continued to be the best band I'd ever seen in my life until I saw Boston. Okay. Oh, my God, Boston. The, the harmonies and the, 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 just the level of musicianship and pace that they kept was just unbelievable. It was so great. And to this day, Boston still has the number one spot for me. But, uh, so, you know, I, I, just, I can't get into today's music or literally everything since the mid-'80s. I, I think MTV changed a lot of music. And, you know, where it used to be, uh, they do rate, rate a record, and you listen to the song, and the kids would go, "Yeah, I like the beat. You could dance to it, and I had good lyrics and nice melody." Well, when MTV came along, that all changed. And we'd ask kids, "Well, what do you think of that song?" And they'd say, "Well, I like the way the, the car drove off the cliff and went down the hillside." It was all about the video then. It wasn't much about the song anymore. Yeah, and you know, and it, I think it, it may have been. Sorry to say, I think it cheapened the music. Well, it, uh, uh, certainly, yeah, because now it was being offset by uh, another something going on it wasn't just straight music i think you're right it never occurred to me that that would have begun with mtv and probably at the time we didn't even realize it so but looking back on it you can see that that had been a a big change what's the most challenging experience you've had regardless of whether you achieved it or not what's what's been a challenge the big challenge for me personally was reading music reading sheet music because i play by ear yeah. But um, I did learn how to read music when I was, you know, nine years old and take a piano lessons. But um, you kind of lose that because I was playing by ear. So I didn't need to read music. I, I could pick it up pretty quickly. About five or six, well, maybe 10 years ago now, we started doing dates with uh, symphony orchestras. And now that's that's become the predominant thing we're doing. We're, I'd say half of our dates now are with symphonies around the country. And you get, you know, 58 guys with strings and horns playing behind you. But you have to. We have to play the songs. There's no improvising. You got to play them like the sheet music says. Sure. Because when you get to a spot, you know where the horns come in, you got to not be on another spot. You got to be doing that, that, that thing. So, uh, in the rehearsals with the um, uh, the um, orchestra leader, with the conductor, we always have a meeting first with them and go through the the particulars of it, how we're going to end the songs, and you know, because uh, a certain end, you do long endings when you're getting a lot of applause, you do short endings when you're not, but you can't do that with an orchestra. They all have to start and stop together. Sure. And so, I had to relearn how to how to do sheet music to look see where we are in the spot. Because the, the, during the rehearsal, the conductor will say, "Wait a minute, stop here. We're going to pick it up at uh, you know bar 19." What is that? Where is that? I don't know what we're talking about. So yeah, that, that was that was a real challenge for me. It took a lot of you know, a mental capacity that I'd forgotten at it, you know, about a long time ago. Because when you get to doing your show, you kind of just do it by rote. You know, you can you do it in your sleep, like you said, and it, um, as soon as you're, you get thrown an orchestra in there, it's a whole other ball. Yeah, and I have a feeling, I'm not sure how many people realize this, but I would have to guess at least half, if not more, of uh, all of the people in, in uh, the rock music business that didn't read sheet music. We could uh, would often use what we referred to as a lead sheet. The lead sheet simply was a list of chords that you would, chord prog- progressions, which uh, working, and we worked with the Wrecking Crew a lot in Hollywood, and much of what they were doing was, um, they could totally read music, but a lot of what they were doing was done just off of lead sheets looking at, uh, looking at, chords i couldn't i took two different separate music courses to learn how to read music and i i couldn't do it I just the brain would not comprehend so i think they, 
playing by ear has its merits. I mean, it's it's a it's a whole another world to be able to play. You sit down and hear something and play it. It's it, a big factor with me and with in our band is that we not just play the songs; we try to sound like the songs. You know, you have to you correct your voice to if you have a country accent, you're going to have to sing like you know a surfer now. You know, not a country guy and. You know, there's a certain sound with reverb and a certain sound with echo and certain sounds, especially doing keyboards, because I have this whole plethora of synthesizers now. You want the sound of the theremin in Good Vibrations to be a sound like a theremin, not like a flute or something else. So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal to, to make it sound right. I, I see bands often, you know, I hate to say it, I'm not going to mention any names, but I'll see another surf band. I'll see some band that, you know, playing Beach Boys music. And it'll literally take me 30 seconds to a minute to figure out what song they're playing. Because it, it's so off. It just doesn't sound, it just sounds like a bunch of garage guys banging together and singing, not, not trying to sound like the record. That always kind of bothers me. Yeah. Uh, and, well, especially with what you guys do, because everything you do sounds exactly like the... the... Well, we try to. <laughs> it takes some work. It takes some work doing that. Just talking about the overall differences now between the 60s and today. Uh, of course, there's a zillion different things happening now. But what's your observation of the difference between 50 years ago and today? Music-wise or audience-wise? Just, uh, e- e- yeah, both. Go with both. Well, music, music-wise, you know what I'm, I see in music today? Uh, I really, I like country music now, today. Today's stuff, I really like country music. It still has elements that were there back in the 50s and 60s, like a hook. You don't find hooks in, in songs today. The hook, if you don't know what a hook is, a hook is uh, the most identifiable thing that's not really the melody, not the lyrics, but it's an identifiable uh, riff in the song. Yeah. Like, for example, the Beatles, that is a hook. Yeah. It's not really the melody, it's just a hook. And you won't find songs that have that. That, that. You could hear that and you know right away what song it is. They don't have that anymore. And so I, I kind of miss that. Country music does. Country music is very hooky and it's very, it's emotional stuff. They, uh, even the lyrics for country songs is more from the heart. It's not, uh, you know, hostile urban poetry as somebody put it one time. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's heartfelt. You know, it's not all about I lost my gal and my dog died. You know, it's not all that. Just everything about country music to me is um, heartfelt stuff. It's, it's like they're not trying to imitate anybody. They're not trying to make a statement. They're just trying to, you know, do some songs that people like. Yeah, uh, it seemed to be a much more uh, emotional level, uh, which I think is important. I mean, we can think back to the 60s when we were talking about the unemotional value of a song like Louie Louie. But you also think about some of the uh, Burt Backrack, Hell David songs where, uh, you know, the lyrics were really important. They were important. I've listened to the Beatles. Their, their lyrics are unbelievably important. That That's disappeared now. It doesn't exist anymore. So Yeah, you know, another thing about the music is uh, my wife and I have different musical tastes. I mean, she likes Led Zeppelin. <laughs> she likes stuff that's really a little on the hard edge. Uh, and my daughter is even more different than that because she grew up in the 90s, you know, so she's like 80s and 90s music. It, it's really funny because, you know, in fact, my daughter said one time when she was in high school, my wife and I were on the committee to be to do the all-night party after the graduation. And we were on the music, the entertainment committee. And I, I said, well, I'll get the band. I'll get Papa Doer and run to come play. And everybody said, wow, wow, that'd be great. So my daughter said... If my dad's playing at my all-night party, I'm not going to be there. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> that was the end of that. So, yeah. I don't know. I think we wound up getting some kind of karaoke thing going on then instead. But, uh, yeah, that's another, actually another challenge, too. Um, speaking of challenges, is, is keeping a family together. You know, a lot of guys, we all got married eventually, and we have families, and um, when you're traveling a lot, that's kind of tough. Sure. Um, I was fortunate enough that uh, we were making enough money that I was able to bring my wife and daughter with me pretty much everywhere we went, except for like school time. But during the summer, when we did our most gigs, we saw a great part. I mean, we had from Australia to England and every place in between. And it was, you know, we had lots of great experiences doing that. So, uh, but, but for the most, for the most part, I just couldn't have, couldn't have pulled that off. And it, uh, That's great you were able to do that because also they shared in, in the whole process of what you do. Uh, most of the time, when I think back when I was on the road, but I didn't bring my wife or uh, my children were too young, actually, to go. And it wasn't until probably 20 or 30 years later when I actually put together a small booklet, probably about 60 pages of some photos and things that I, I remembered from back in the 60s. I put it together for my boys because they had no clue about any of that at all. So that's neat that you were able to, you know, have your family with you. What What's going on nowadays? What's What are the plans for the future? Doing the same thing. <laughs> we just, we don't, we're not doing as many days as we used to do. We used to do 100 dates a year. At one point, we are doing 150. And that, that was just way too much. Oh, yeah. But, um, it, you know, things slowed down as we got older and that, we still have the same audience, which is kind of odd. I mean, we started off in the 60s playing for high schools and colleges, and then in the 70s they got older and they had families, and we were playing for Disneyland, the perfect family venue. And then they got a little older and they were going to nightclubs. We played all the clubs and then the Vegas and Tahoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they started doing the corporate thing. They, they um, all got into business, and they were having corporate parties, and we played for all those. And the corporate parties went away about eight or nine years ago. So we decided... That's when we started getting into orchestra dates. We said, you know, let's just do this. But we still have the same audience. They're the same people. We used to look out at the audience, and the, the joke is we'd look peek behind the curtain, and if we saw a lot of bald heads and gray hair, <laughs> we knew we were in trouble. But yeah. now we don't see a lot of bald heads and gray hair. We were in trouble. So uh, it's the same people. They, people want to hear the music they grew up with. And, so, um, and doing them with the symphony makes it all acceptable. And so that's why we do so many symphony days, I think. And they come out, they all sell out. It's, it's incredible. It's just, uh, you know, to have um, you know, all the Beach Boy songs, you know, the songs that you, you grew up with. You know, God Only Knows, Wouldn't It Be Nice, uh, Help Me Rhonda, Soup Jumbi. Have them played with, you know, all these guys behind you on strings and horns. It's an amazing thing. So that's what we're focusing on now. We're doing a lot of that. Have you got any dates coming up in, in the Bay Area with the symphony? Because we'd love to go. No, we don't. we're going to Houston, we're going to Detroit, uh, we're going to Buffalo. Those are all with symphonies. Okay. Um, we did Santa Cruz Symphony last year. That was that was a pretty good date. If you're going to be in, you know, in the let's just say up through summer, let me know because we, we want to, I want to hear you guys with the symphony. That sounds like a really Well, we're doing a non-symphony gig. It's the only one we, we do. Actually, it's Santa Cruz Boardwalk. You know, oh, yeah. Boardwalk. Sure. Every year, this will be our 27th year in a row. Uh, we, always, we always close it out. We do the it's a Friday of Labor Day weekend this year. I think it's going to be September 1st. Okay. And so we'll be on, on the beach that night. And it's, it's always a great day. You know, 9,000 people out on the beach. You know, I would like to say it's a, a party with 9,000 of our closest friends. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll be there. <laughs> That's for sure. Hey, I want to thank you for 
Uh, we could go on for a long time because there's so much to talk about, and, and you guys have covered so much ground in all of these years. There are so many great stories, and I'm glad I found out about your dad because that's another whole area of stories. So anyway, uh, Don, thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome, Dick. It was my pleasure. I, I love talking about myself. Well, that's good. <laughs> I love hearing about you talking about yourself. So. <laughs> Anyway, thanks again, and uh, we shall talk soon. All right, Dick. You know, we've got a website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, and we feature a lot of vintage merchandise available for sale. I just got a new item in, which I think is going to attract some real attention. It's a John Lennon-signed caricature of himself, something he drew, and uh, it's a pretty rare item in very good condition. Also, speaking of big-time rock stars, if you're an Elvis fan, you got to see this Aloha from Hawaii framed gold record, actually two 24-karat gold-plated records. So check them out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. And you can also email me with your suggestions. For example, what guests would you like me to have on the show? Go to americasoldiesbutgoodies.com and check the contact page where you can generate an email to me. I'd love to hear from you with any ideas that you've got. So please be in touch and make sure to check out americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, not only for the vintage merchandise, but you can listen to our past shows there as well. So until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then.